A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. To be very honest, today, today, this is uh, the 21st, the 21st of July, 2023, I'm waiting for a report from a high-up RCMP committee that's finally going to decide whether or not to investigate Jeffrey's disappearance. How about that? It's every parent's worst nightmare, their child being taken from them by a complete stranger. In a country known for its beauty, diversity, and friendly communities, it's easy to feel a sense of security. However, beneath this serene surface lies a dark and disturbing reality. Occurrences of stranger child abductions that have been reported throughout the years, reminding us that danger can sometimes lurk where we least expect it. In the innocence of childhood, we find boundless joy and wonder. But there are those whose hearts and minds are tainted by malevolence, preying on the most vulnerable among us. Each one of these instances of child abduction leaves a trail of devastation in its wake. A family is left reeling and emotionally shattered, while the larger community is forever haunted and changed by the tragedy. Doors that were never locked are now double-checked and deadbolted. Children who were once allowed to have free reign over their neighborhoods are now ordered to stay close to home and within view of their loved ones. Freedom, innocence, and a sense of comfort and security are forever lost. In late April of 1980, a family in small-town Alberta was about to be victimized by what law enforcement believed to be a complete stranger or strangers. 43 years later, the case still remains unsolved. In tonight's episode, we dive into the disappearance of three-year-old Jeffrey Dupre, and you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime. Whether you're a longtime listener or brand new to the podcast, we are glad you are all here. If you're looking for more True North True Crime, you can subscribe to TNTC Plus on Apple Podcasts or on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you'll get early access to our regular episodes as well as ad-free, and you will receive exclusive TNTC Plus bonus content. 
And just a reminder that True North True Crime will always be a free podcast. We will always release our usual two episodes per month for free on this regular feed. And any urgent or missing persons case will never be behind a paywall. We do know that the Apple feed looks a little messy with the TNTC Plus content beside your regular content, and it may be confusing. And unfortunately, that's kind of out of our control. But to clear things up, early release episodes come out on Mondays as TNTC Plus, but then they are free on Thursdays and they look like just a regular episode. So just to recap, True Nor True Crime will always be a free podcast. However, if you want the bonus perks of TNTC Plus, then you can subscribe now or check it out with a free trial. Whatever you choose, we're happy you're here. Leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or hitting subscribe or follow on whichever podcast platform you are currently listening to this podcast on is an excellent way to show your love and support for the podcast. And as always, we'd love to hear from our listeners and invite you to send us case suggestions to truenortruecrime at gmail.com. Please be aware that we do prioritize cases that are sent to us directly from family members or close contacts of that case. However, having said that, we welcome all requests from everyone. All right, with that, let's go ahead and dive right into the disappearance of Jeffrey Dupre. Okay, so in this episode, we are going to be detailing the historic child abduction case of Jeffrey Dupre. Jeffrey has now been missing for 43 years, and unfortunately, historic missing persons cases are notoriously underfunded, making this case all the more important to cover to ensure Jeffrey's story continues to be shared and talked about. Jeffrey was just three years old when he mysteriously vanished outside his home in Slave Lake, Alberta in April of 1980. We put this episode together using various news articles as well as some archived articles. We were also lucky enough to sit down with Jeffrey's mother, Denise McKee, who is still looking for answers 43 years after her son vanished. This case takes place in Slave Lake, Alberta. Slave Lake is a small town in northern Alberta with a population of just 6,651 people in 2016, and the population in 1980, when our case takes place, was just 4,328 people. Slave Lake sits 255 kilometers northwest of Edmonton and was incorporated as a town in 1965. Slave Lake is a haven for nature lovers of all types. With its unparalleled access to various types of wilderness, there are lots of things to do. Whether you're an avid fisherman or hunter or simply happy to read a book on the shores of the lake, there's something to bring all sorts of travelers to the region. Being a town in northern Alberta, Slave Lake has a subarctic climate, where summers tend to be on the mild side, but winters are severe with sub-zero temperatures and lots of snow. However, this area is prone to wildfire activity, and in May of 2011, the Slave Lake wildfire devastated the small town. This fire destroyed one-third of Slave Lake, including hundreds of houses, the town hall, the library, a radio station, as well as the mall. 732 residents were left homeless in the aftermath, and over $700 million of damage was done. Miraculously, no residents were killed in this horrific wildfire. However, a pilot did lose his life when his helicopter crashed as he was assisting in efforts to put the fire out. We asked Denise to tell us about what led her and her husband Ray and young Jeffrey to Slave Lake in 1980. What led us to Slave Lake was Jeffrey's dad accepted a job with the local uh, Indian Regional Council, the Lesser Slave Lake Indian Regional Council, because their great chief, Walter Twin, uh, 
he I think he got sick of listening to stories about self-government and he walked in he organized all the bands that were served by the local uh, office into this regional council and then they walked into the Indian Affairs and they said we want self-government we want all of the, the employees, the office space, everything, you know, we now are going to administer all of our benefits. And uh, and Ray started out negotiating for Indian Affairs, you know, the details. And one day, he, he was up in Slave Lake for quite a long time before I came. And, and uh, one day he phoned me and he said, uh, Walter wants me to work for him. And I said... Uh, he and I had had several back and forth about moving to Edmonton. So I said, well, tell him to throw in $10,000. Uh, I remember that $10,000 a car and a house and I'll consider it. And he called me back uh, half an hour later or something. And he says, start packing. And when we moved in, Walter, who's living next door, banged on the door the first night. And he had a bottle in his hand and he said, I sure hope you bump back glasses because you and I are going to get to know each other because I know what happened. And he said, I've never been out bargained by a woman yet. and I never will. So uh, uh, I didn't give you a chance, did I? And I said, no. And he said, bye. You know, so, yeah, he and he became uh, he did, did live next door till after Jeffrey disappeared. And he, he was a great friend for a very long time. Unfortunately, he's gone now, but. So as Denise just outlined, in 1980, her husband Ray was working on behalf of the Canadian government, negotiating self-governance for local First Nations bands. Then during these negotiations, or right after they ended, Ray was offered a job with the local First Nations band in Slave Lake by their soon-to-be neighbor, Walter. Ray and Denise accepted the job and in effect switched sides on the negotiating table. Now Ray, along with Denise, worked alongside the local First Nations to better their community. Now, according to historical weather data, April of 1980 was the hottest April on record for Slave Lake, and on April 24th of 1980, Slave Lake was again on fire. The sky was orange with smoke, and most of the town's law enforcement were wrapped up in the panic that comes with a wildfire encroaching on a residential community. There were actually two separate fires burning, both threatening the small town. One fire was to the west and one was to the south. The one to the south of the town was burning near a petroleum plant, which was naturally a massive concern for authorities. Over 125 RCMP officers from across the province were responding to the wildfire situation in Slave Lake, and tragically, a pilot who was flying a water bomber lost his life that day. Amidst all of this chaos, another tragedy would hit Slave Lake on April 24, 1980. A three-year-old boy would vanish without a trace from the front yard of his home. Now, Jeffrey Dupre was just three years old on April 24, 1980. The firstborn child to Denise McKee and Ray Dupre. Jeffrey is described as a thoughtful, determined, bright, energetic, and talkative young boy. He was born on March 16, 1977, and his eyes were blue-gray. He had curly dark blonde hair at the time, and he was about 3 feet tall and roughly 35 pounds. Even though he was just 3 years old, Jeffrey's mom, Denise, who was 26 uh, when she was a first-time mom with him in 1980, said that her son already knew who he was. 
He once saw a neighbor kill a moose, and he declared he no longer wanted to eat meat. When asked why, he said he didn't want to, quote, make animals dead. Jeffrey was also a bit of a handful. Denise described him as half monkey because of his ability to get out of his crib at just nine months old. But in an example of how sweet Jeffrey was, he would get up early in the morning and close his door before playing with his trucks in an effort to be quieter for everyone else in the house. We asked Denise to tell us about Jeffrey. He was, uh, Jeffrey was, first of all, he was quite brilliant. Both my sons that I have now have tested out at, you know, 98 percentile or 90 whatever. And my father used to tell them all the time, well, guess what? Because Jeffrey was way smarter than either one of you. But uh, my dad was, no, my dad. Anyway, uh, they, uh, he was very smart, but he was, I would call it self-contained. He from, he and he was part monkey. He'd climb anywhere he could figure out he would put something on something climb up on it to go so he, he we couldn't keep him in his crib from nine months he would we would hear crash and he would have climbed out of it and he'd, he'd crash so uh we had to shut his door and then as he got older he would get up and first thing he would do is close his bedroom door and play for a while before he wanted to face the world he was quite content to be uh he was he's self-contained but because I babysat, I guess, he was also very sociable. But he was very attached to me, right? Because I was his mom. Uh, I, I tried to get a part-time job at Sears just to do something. At one point when I wasn't babysitting and a neighbor was watching him. And so uh, uh, I went over to have tea and he was running around playing with her child. And I said... Uh, Yes, I said, she said, oh, he's so active today. I said, what? And she said, when you leave him here, he just sits there and waits for you. And when I say, you want to do this? No, no, I'm waiting for my mom. So that was the last day I went to work. So the family had just moved to the town of Slave Lake three months prior in January of 1980, as Ray had landed a job at the local First Nation. Denise also began to work with Indigenous parents and teachers at an organization called Education North. Education North was created by the provincial government in Alberta to ease the reluctance that Indigenous people were feeling around sending their children to school after the horrors that they had endured at the hands of residential schools. The family had settled into their new home in Slave Lake, and Jeffrey had even made a new friend, a five-year-old boy named Rodney who lived next door. So let's get into the timeline of events that took place on April 24th, 1980. Before we go ahead and get into the timeline, we do want to respectfully remind people that parenting was very different than it is now in the 70s and 80s. It was perfectly normal for a child to be allowed to go off and play on their own or with other kids without a parent constantly present. We've seen comments online judging Denise for her actions that day, and we want to ask our audience to please be kind and remember we are talking about real people in these episodes. I'm sure if Denise had known what was going to happen that day, she obviously would have done things differently. At the end of the day, a mother and a father are still missing their son, and brothers are mourning the loss of a brother that they never got to know. So, as mentioned, April 24th, 1980 was a hectic and stressful day in the town of Slave Lake, with a fire raging on the outskirts of town. You can imagine the skies being darkened by smoke, an orange haze enveloping the town, and a strong odor of campfire in the air. There would no doubt be a constant loop of sirens in the distance making their way to the front lines, as well as the sound of aerial support in the form of water bombers and helicopters. 
It was a chaotic day, and in the midst of that was a family living what they thought would be just a normal day. At around 1 p.m., Denise was outside with her son Jeffrey when Jeffrey stated that he wanted to go play with his friend Rodney next door. Denise didn't give this a second thought as the two friends routinely would go between each other's houses to play. So Jeffrey went to Rodney's house as Denise turned to go back inside their house to finish the laundry that she had started. As Denise was taking out a load of laundry from the washer and putting it into the dryer, she heard through an open window Rodney's dad call out for him to come inside. This caught Denise's attention, and so she looked outside to see if she could spot the boys making their way inside Rodney's house, but she didn't see either of the children and assumed that they had already went inside. Between 15 and 20 minutes went by when Denise's doorbell rang. Standing on the stoop was Rodney, but not Jeffrey. This is when Rodney asked a question that would send any parent's heart into overdrive. Rodney asked where Jeffrey was. At that moment, Denise's life was forever changed. Her search began immediately, frantically searching the areas around the immediate vicinity of the two homes, and when Jeffrey wasn't located, Denise called the police around 1.45 p.m. When she got a hold of the police, they told her they were busy and to continue searching on her own with the aid of her neighbors. It was suggested by the police that Jeffrey had simply wandered away, but from the get-go, Denise did not believe that this was the case. We asked Denise to tell us what she remembers about that day, and even 43 years later, she remembers it vividly. Here's Denise. That day, I know uh, we had a normal morning and that, and uh, I know I had started laundry. Then Jeffrey went outside, which he did. He saw Rodney, his little friend next door, and he was playing with Rodney, and I went outside to ask him if he wanted lunch because he had 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 a late breakfast and he had said no before. So uh, Fred, uh, Rodney's dad, was there and we started chatting and then Fred noticed that Rodney's, he had crumbs on his face or something from lunch and he, he sent him back in to, to walk, get washed up. And a few minutes later, uh, Jeffrey said to me, can I go in with Rodney? And they were in and out, out of each other's houses all the time. So I said, sure. And then he... He went and his friend and I stood there. I don't like I literally look back for 43 years and I, I don't know what happened. I, I don't know where he went, what happened. He just uh, my dad before he died used to say, well, uh, at least now probably I'll, I'll talk to the aliens and they'll tell me what happened to him. You know, like like it, it was that weird, like he just disappeared. But uh, then then the nightmare, of course, started, you know, that, that was uh the start of the whole thing. Ray was out of town. He was working in, in the office in High Prairie at the time. So uh, uh, after so I went, after talking to Fred, I assume uh, Jeffrey had gone in with Rodney. I, I went in and I, I think I changed a load of laundry. I took another washer, put it in the dryer. And uh, then I went, uh, then uh, Rodney came to the door. That was about, about 15 minutes uh, later and uh, said, hey, I'm going to talk to play with Jeffrey. And I went, whoa. So I, I had Rodney sit on the front step and I said, well, he might, you know, if he went somewhere and I got in my truck and I wrote up and down, down the street and I said over and over again, I, I always had a very hard time believing that he wandered away past because as you already identified, it was a very hot day. 
and everyone was outside and I already identified that Jeffrey's main interest, he would have gone for the first group of kids. And then if they didn't want me to go to the next group of kids, but for him to walk past a whole bunch of group of kids for no reason, I, I, I always wondered like what reason, what would he have walked? Because the truck that was seen picking up a child was uh, more than a mile away. And, and although he was very physically capable, I admitted that to the police. Oh yeah, he can walk, he can run, he can, but, uh, but whether he would have gone past those children always struck me as unlikely. In 2023, it's difficult to imagine that the police would not immediately jump into action when it comes to a missing child. But in the 70s, and you have to remember that today's case takes place in 1980, so the 70s mentality was still prevalent, it was normal for the police to wait 24 to 72 hours before investigating. Today, we understand how absolutely crucial those first few hours are when it comes to locating a missing child. In a 2006 study done in the United States on child abductions, it was found that in 76% of child abductions, the child was deceased within three hours of being kidnapped. And in 88.5% of cases, the child had been killed in the first 24 hours. This underscores the importance of acting quickly when a child has been abducted. Now, unfortunately, as most of us who are familiar with Cases of child kidnapping in the 60s to the 90s, we know that law enforcement was often slow to react, opting to wait for a lost child to simply return home. Denise would call the police back at 2.20 p.m., again desperate for some assistance. This time, the police said that they would come to her place, but it took over an hour for them to arrive at the residence. Now, it was around this time while officers were at the Dubray home that they got a call over their radios that the water bomber had crashed and that the pilot had tragically perished. This again took the police's attention away from Jeffrey's disappearance and back to the chaotic front lines of the wildfires. Now, when asked about the police's delayed response, Denise stated to various media outlets that she understands they were preoccupied with the fires that day. But she also questions whether the fact that she lived in a neighborhood that had many indigenous residents also factored into the, what she referred to as a lackluster response from the police. In stark contrast was the community who was quick to react and support Denise in her desperate search for her son. In just hours, news of Jeffrey Dupre's disappearance had spread throughout the community of Slave Lake and hundreds of volunteers showed up to help Denise look for Jeffrey. Ray, Jeffrey's father, would arrive home after being away on business an hour away in High Prairie, Alberta. After searching through the evening and late night hours, at 3 a.m., Ray took an hour-long nap while Denise, unable to rest, continued to search all night for Jeffrey. We wanted to get an idea of what the neighborhood looked like, so we asked Denise to try to describe the area of Slave Lake their house was situated in. It, it was a residential neighborhood, but this is a small northern town. Uh, our house was on the last line of houses that were built before then there was a the equivalent of i guess a street and two two uh, houses uh from the highway and we were about i don't know a block or so from uh, the main road that came in from the highway but when you say main road it sounds like a main road <laughs> to city person it would just look like a, a little street you know there there wasn't much main about it but uh, and it was all uh, bungalows, small houses, 
there were there were a few um, public housing things at the end of the street, which were slightly bigger homes. Some of them for you know three bedrooms and stuff, but most of them were little like ours. And they uh, everybody in the neighborhood were either there were a lot lot of native people and and uh, you know like Fred, he was a public servant, and uh, you know then there were oil people, you know that also lived there. So to recap, it's a quiet residential area in a small northern town. It is quite near the highway, so that's obviously of interest in the case of a missing child. There was also green space situated near their bungalow as well. At 7 a.m. the following day, April 25th, 1980, the official search resumed. The community really came out in droves to assist Denise. Over 200 students from the local high school, as well as their teachers, would join in the search. Stores in town locked their doors and instead spent their day searching for young Jeffrey. It was reported in the Edmonton Journal that on the afternoon of April 25th, residents formed an arm-length chain over a mile long to search for any sign of Jeffrey. Areas were searched repeatedly that day, and roads up to 64 kilometers out of town were searched as well. Denise also suggested to the police that they should utilize the roadblocks that had been set up due to the fires as a method of searching cars for Jeffrey, but the police told her this wouldn't be possible because they had no description of a vehicle of interest. We asked Denise to tell our listeners what she remembers about the early searches. Well, there was a forest fire. That's something I think also your your listeners will be able to relate to today. The town was uh, threatened by a forest fire. There was an edge of the forest fire. The school that I mentioned, the high school, it was let out early because it was uh, our, but if you describe the town in four quadrants, we were in southeast and the fire was mostly in northwest. So we actually didn't see a lot of the the fire, Uh, but uh, uh, we knew about it, but when I called the police, correct, they said that they were busy because of the fire and they couldn't come. Now, I think they didn't take it seriously anyway, but uh, they, uh, but I had already called the regional council and I talked to my friends and I had met, uh, I had gone to the Canada Employment Office to inquire about work and I had met the head of the office uh, he and local newspaper publisher Bruce Thomas, they had were running a disaster committee in Slave Lake. So I must admit, I said this is pretty much a disaster to me. So I phoned them, and it just uh, people just started showing up at my house. They came over to disaster committee. They had maps. They did this, and they started organizing a, 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 a regulated, an organized uh, search that night. I know the police gone on dogs that night. That's one of the things they did do. I like to acknowledge that. And and uh, they, uh, but like some of the stories, like one of the women I met at the Canada Employment Office the day before, and I, I knew her for many years after that. We became good friends. But she came in and she stepped out of her car and she had like, uh, heels on you know and she and she looked at me and she said don't suppose you have rubber boots <laughs> you know I, I, i'll go look too like everybody was showing up while working alongside searchers denise recalled being next to a man who had no idea she was jeffrey's mother and he told her that he worked for one of the local petroleum plants that were threatened by the fire 
The man phoned his boss telling him he wouldn't be in that day because he needed to search for the missing toddler, and his boss told him no. Here's Denise recalling the moments that she spent searching with the community and the gentleman who nearly lost his job in order to assist with the search for Jeffrey. Uh, Ray had fallen asleep and, and he had said he would go on the search. So I, I said, I went, I, I didn't identify myself. Most people didn't know me, but I just went and I showed up and I was given the spot to stand and I was walking through, you know, and this uh, uh, man beside me, he started telling me, he said, well, I think I quit my job last night. And I said, what? And he said, well, I called my boss and I told him I wanted to come on this search. And he said, no. He said, the, and, and, you know, I would end up working with this fellow for Amico. And I knew that I knew the boss, uh, the, the plant was threatened by the same fire that had threatened Slave Lake, and he needed his best people there. I mean, this is a gas plant. Fire is a little bit of an issue. And, uh, but anyway, and then the guy said, but then I said, then I went in and I looked at my two-year-old daughter sleeping and I said, to hell with it, I'm going anyway. So I said, I don't know if I'll have a job, but he did, he did. They they, they didn't hire him, but uh, you know that, that was just how people felt. They felt strongly that they wanted to help. It was moments like these that Denise remembers fondly knowing that the community was there for her in the darkest times a person can even fathom. As she stated, the man did get his job back, by the way, but the willingness of people to put their own lives on hold to search for Jeffrey really showed Denise how important this was to the community. During the search, someone mentioned that it was possible that Jeffrey could have wandered into a nearby creek. Here's Denise talking a little bit about that possibility, as well as where the creek was in relation to their house. Well, yes, if, if you walk down our street, I described that there was a main highway and then we were a block or so farther. Then if you went back down another block or so, it curved around and it went to the high school and somewhere behind there, there was access to the creek. And I honestly don't remember because I I know that uh, I, I walked over the creek once and it was scared me to death. So I never did it again because it just had those you can see the water underneath. That wasn't for me. So, uh, but uh, so I know it was there. No, the creek was a big part of it because uh, I believe I talked to you about that, Graham. That uh, that's one of the most heroic things the town did was the town had organized a search and they they brought in uh, Billy. Billy did anyway. I think the anyway one of the big businesses they brought in their big um, machines and they dammed up creek and then once it drained enough that people could get down in it just all the dads just got to have it i remember some of them crying while they did it you know with their the rakes because they weren't looking for a live boy at that point right and they were they were terrified that they would find something so uh yeah no it's uh so i so i know as i say i know for the town and for the police it was a, a concern but uh nothing came of it So some workers from the petroleum plant banded together to bulldoze the area so that they could more effectively search it. These men uh, searched tirelessly for any sign of Jeffrey using rakes and other tools. By the end, they were all in tears after searching yielded no results. After days of searching with no sign of Jeffrey anywhere, it was deemed that he was unlikely to be in the town, or at least not in plain sight. 
Denise begged the RCMP to ask members of the armed forces to come to Slave Lake to assist in their search efforts, and initially the police refused, stating that it wasn't their jurisdiction to do so and the province would be responsible for filling such a request. Denise made headlines by stating to the media that if Jeffrey were out there in the wilderness, somewhere left to succumb to the elements, the police would then be responsible for his death due to their refusal to bring in the armed forces to assist. Now, while it wasn't her intention to create such a salacious headline, it did make national news. So here's Denise with more about that. What happened was this town search, it was happening. The people that I knew, the band office and that, they they were looking after me and, you know, uh, taking me to the bar a lot. But anyway, people were trying to keep me... Uh, pacified, whatever, but I was at the search center and one of the representatives of the committee came to me and said, Denise, as you know, we finished our search today and we can tell you with some authority, Jeffrey is not in Slave Lake. However, if he is not in Slave Lake, even the police say he probably wandered off into the bush. We, we were, we backed onto the bush. So he said, we can't search the bush. We can't do with the bush what we did today. We need the armed forces to do a good search of the bush. And we started the process because legally the process was that the province had to request the, the forces. Now, the RCMP were acting as the provincial police. So when the RCMP found out about this request, they nixed it. They just said no. So I hope um, you can realize I was a little bit on the uh, startled side. So I drove over to the police station and I went in and I said to the staff sergeant, Staff Sergeant Laliberti, are you not going to call in the armed forces to look for my son? And he said, no. And so I said, no. And I, and I would find out... I, that's a whole long story I can tell you because I lived there 13 years later about this man and what he wanted and how he got overruled and all this stuff. But uh, he said no, so I said, then I will. Well, he laughed, and I've said, you know, for 40 years, if only he'd done anything but laugh. If he had responded with words, it might have gone differently. But he made me mad. He didn't bother to ask, and he didn't know I was going to be able to get the armed forces. Right. So I just turned and said to him, well, we'll see who has the last laugh. So when I went back to the, the search uh, center, I wasn't in a very good mood about the police. So I walked out in front of the, the media there were all kinds of media. And it was, you know, flashing and all this stuff. And he says uh, and I said and, and I I got I would go on to have national uh, coverage, which said the RCMP may have killed my son, which is shockingly to me the way it works. Now, I've had a lot to do with the media since, so I'm uh, more uh, aware. But I was freaked because I I have a philosophy, a political science degree, and I work really hard not to say that. However, I did prove it. I said uh, the RCMP agreed that he probably wandered off into the bush. They also said they they weren't going to search the bush, even though the town had identified that they were needed, that they needed to call in the forces. 
they're not going to do it. And I said, so if Jeffrey dies out in the bush, whose fault is it? That's the question that I asked. But I did get, like, I mean, the media were right. It was a much sexier comment. The RCMP may have killed my son. So it has certainly got attention. After speaking to the press, Denise immediately made use of her contacts within various political parties and drew upon the goodwill that she had built throughout her career. Here's Denise with the story of how she was able to get the ball rolling. I, as I said, I had worked for the NDP. I had literally been working for the NDP in a small capacity when Jeffrey was born. So I had called my NDP friends in Ottawa telling them that we needed to mobilize and stuff. And I called the local MP, who of course was a conservative, whom I hadn't met. He hadn't met me, never heard me anything. And I told him my story. He teased me a little. He and I would go on to be really good friends. And he teased me a bit about being a, a lefty and everything. And then he got in his private plane and drove to Slave Lake to see if he could help. Then I called the the provincial guy because it had been a, you know, they're the ones that had to request the forces. And I called uh, Larry Shaven and before I was off the phone with Larry Shaven, he had authorized the armed forces. And, and they, But it did come up in Parliament and the RCMP got in all kinds of trouble. And they, you know, like I say, they didn't get good. And that's what they decided for some reason, like investigative force, they're not. They decided somehow that the fact that I would attack the, the RCMP made me guilty. And they decided that what they were going to do was prove that I was guilty. That's all they ever tried to do. Now, Denise mentioned that the police considered her a suspect, and we will get into that shortly. But immediately after Denise put out the SOS call to her contacts, roughly 100 soldiers joined in the search for Jeffrey. RCMP brought in a helicopter with an infrared camera to look for heat sources in the dense brush, but after four days of searching with the help of soldiers and nine days since Jeffrey initially went missing, the official search for Jeffrey Dupre was called off on May 5th, 1980, without a single article of clothing or even a footprint ever being found. Denise did have support through the organization she worked for in Slave Lake called Education North. Many of her coworkers were Indigenous who had stories of their own where they had loved ones go missing, and they offered Denise a newfound perspective on the police. You know, but I mean, and realistically, I mean, I would have said he probably wandered off too if somebody said something to me, right? I mean, um, like, this is 43 years later and I've hardly thought about anything else and I have no idea what happened as we started. I mean, did the aliens come dig him? Whatever, he just freaking disappeared. Uh, you know, it was like, it's bizarre. Uh, so, so yes, you, you're right. That's But the, the community... Uh, First of all, that's the other thing that's not really my story to tell, but it is in a way, is that the Education North people I was working with, whom I came to call my mums, I would later run for the school board, they would sign my papers and everything, and they were my mums, and they, uh, apologies to the dads that were involved, by the way, but they told me, they said, we'd feel your pain, Denise, we know, uh, my auntie's cousin didn't come back, my you know, that person didn't come back. We know. And, of course, uh, we asked, what do you mean they didn't come back? Uh, and all the people that we spoke to, or at least I spoke to, uh, I can say, plus they gave me a perspective on the police that I don't think the RCMP would have liked. They, they, one of my friends said, Denise, 
stop. You, you have to not expect them to help. They, they take children away. They don't bring them back. Denise was insistent with local law enforcement, as any mother of a lost child would be. But unfortunately, Denise was being treated like she was some sort of thorn in their side. The relationship was becoming tense, and eventually the police did have a suspect in mind for the disappearance of Jeffrey Dupre. And that suspect was Denise. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the life and disappearance of three-year-old Jeffrey Dupre. After many searches, the town was unable to find Jeffrey. Denise became a regular fixture at the RCMP detachment and on the news while searching for her son. She carried herself with a strong determination. Well, it seems that her frequent trips to the detachment put her on the investigator's radar, and Denise became a suspect in her own son's disappearance. We asked Denise about this experience. Well, you're right. I mean, I cannot tell you what it feels like to have people think you killed your child. You know, like, uh, it's like, it's so bizarre. Uh, but I came to understand it and I came to sympathize to the people of Slave Lake. It would have been a great relief to find out that I had killed Jeffrey. Because if I didn't kill Jeffrey, something happened to him in our town. Something that could happen to their child. We asked Denise how she came to find out that the police suspected her of harming Jeffrey. But I can tell you how. Uh, basically, they told me uh, that they just stopped communicating to me and I'd go in and ask them stuff. I, I went in one day and I, I said, I, I'd like uh, to know what, what you're doing with Jeffrey's thing. And they take me and they put me in this room. I sat there for more than two hours and no one came. And when I finally opened the door and said, okay, you know, you're making me wait. There was one woman in the office and she said, oh, everybody's gone home. And and so I started, I, I would go, I'd take a book. That's what I made, did the mistake I made the first time. Now we'd all have our phones, right? But I took a book and I just sat there and read. Uh, but then uh, later in the summer, I don't know, it would have been uh, June maybe, uh, because they weren't telling us anything, 
as I mentioned, uh, I tended to be political. Uh, my mom, she lived here in Ottawa and she had a Liberal MP and it was a Liberal government. So we did a, a ministerial request from the Liberals to find out what was going on and so it wouldn't get partisan. And uh, I get called into the police station, right? Uh, we want you to come in. So I go in and the staff sergeant's there. The superintendent Van Buren is there and, and the corporal. And they're all standing behind the desk and they all have uniforms, hats. You know, they're all big and everything. They've got metal on and, you know, everything. And they're standing there. And uh, Van Buren reaches out and he waves a little piece of paper and he says, are you responsible for this? And I said, I'm thinking that might be a ministerial inquiry, given your reaction. So anyway, so I, I just sat there and I looked at them, the three of them, and finally I said, you must be so proud. And they looked at me and they said, what? And I said, you must be so proud. Three strong men standing there behind a desk, threatening a bereaved mother. Oh, you must be so proud. And I got up and I left. That's all I said. I never said another word because I was so angry. I was afraid what I would say. They quite stupidly wanted to believe that I had killed Jeffrey. That, that's what was so amazing about the police. They talked themselves into it. And so he was clearly trying to stimulate some sort of reaction in me that would uh, take me and, and make me go and dig up wherever I left Jeffrey's body. So in order to do this, he gets this book and, and he's looking. I have no idea what the book was, except he went to a course or something and they told him that this was a good thing to do. So he would lick his thumb. He had this big fat thumb, but he would lick this thumb and he would turn the page and then say, you know, after the body's left out there, uh, the bears will get it and the coyotes and everything. He starts talking about these animals ripping my son's body apart. And then he goes, and then there's the stuff, and he gets down to the bugs and the everything. It's like, he just kept going. He just was described me in it, as they say. And, and I must admit, that was one of the occasions. And that's a really good technique, except it only works if I actually killed him. We really want to highlight here how a police officer put a mother through an interrogation tactic where they explained the decomposition process of her toddler's remains and which animals would be preying on his corpse throughout the days and weeks he was out there deceased, all in an effort to incite a confession from her. The following is a quote from Denise in an article in Southam News from 1999. The police wouldn't tell me anything, and obviously it was the center of my life. I suppose they were suspecting me. It culminated in me taking a lie detector test at their request, which was an unreal, horrible experience. They make you lie with trick questions to measure the other answers by. That was in July, three months later. It was the first time they had said to my face about me being a suspect. I was so focused on finding Jeffrey and had no idea that they were thinking that about me. Here's what Denise had to say to us in regards to the polygraph test. So then finally, finally in July, I think, they gave me a lie detector test. Reference again, my training. The first time they read me the questions, the first thing they do when they tell you they're going to ask you these questions, right? They went through them and I said, I can't answer them without lying. And he said, and the guy looked at me and I said, that's logically impossible to answer them totally without lying. And as a result, my psychology will know I'm lying and I will register as lying. 
with this 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 question, three questions, and that is actually how a lie detector test is designed. It's to make you answer yes to something that you're you you actually know was a lie, and then they'll have that uh, uh, comparison, comparative. It's a comparative thing, anyway. So I remember the guy's reaction the way he looked at me. Okay, anyway. So then he just kept asking me more. I was in it four and a half hours or something. It was like took forever. Finally, he just said the heck with it, and and he did it. And then he told me that I had a stronger reaction than most of the policemen he he tested. He said, "I'm going to give you this, and you're going to put it on every uh, uh, telephone pole in." They still existed in those days. Telephone pole in Slave Lake, and you're going to show your neighbors that you didn't kill your son, but. They uh, and they just went mute. Then they just they were mad and upset because they. But then they drove right past it. You know, uh, six months later or whatever, they weren't referring to it. It was all. I was still back to being a suspect, and the reason I was a suspect, the reason they will still describe me as a suspect, is because they didn't look. They didn't do anything. Denise states that she believes that because she tends to fare well under pressure and stress that the police and also the general public took that strength and focus as signs of guilt. She recalls standing up and speaking without tears and doing other things that could have been construed as bizarre at the time, such as driving around at all hours of the night in her truck. Denise said the following in an article for the Edmonton Journal in the year 2000. I wasn't victim enough for them to treat my pain with respect. I've always been good in an emergency, and when Jeffrey went missing, I got very focused. I just wanted it to be all over and have Jeffrey back. We asked Denise how her ability to remain composed shaped the public's opinion of her. My mother was belly British raised, and, you know, I don't cry. I still don't. So... Although I cried a lot after Jeffrey disappeared, I cried a lot. I cried so much that I can't cry anymore. That's what they say. I, I think I cried out. I was raised in this, you know, party and everything. And I was a, I went to university at age 16 and I was a raging feminist. And, you know, I marched. I started a communist and everything. I don't fold up and cry. I fight back. And I fought back. And the RCMP as I say, interpreted that as guilt. There was a lead in this case, however, a lead that had nothing to do with Denise. This lead has been spoken about for 40 years. Witnesses say that they saw a couple in a truck take Jeffrey. This truck was described as a 1978 or 1980 custom-painted aqua or blue Chevy GMC short box pickup with chrome bumpers and wheels. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of confidence when it comes to the type of license plate that the truck had. However, we've seen it reported as mostly Alberta, Northwest Territories, or a vaguely U.S. plate. Now, the woman who was allegedly seen kidnapping Jeffrey is described as an attractive female in her 20s, apparently 5'2 and 110 pounds with shoulder-length brown hair. The driver is a man in his late 30s. He had short reddish blonde hair and was clean-shaven. Both of the abductors appeared to be of small stature. The woman enticed Jeffrey towards the truck, and then once he was near, she seized him placed him in the cab of the truck, and then the truck 
quickly fled the scene. The witnesses who say they saw this happen were a mother and her two children. Law enforcement actually flew the three of them out to Edmonton to undergo hypnotism to see if any more details could be coaxed out of them. However, nothing further ever came of this tip of the couple in the truck that had been seen coaxing Jeffrey into their vehicle. No one was ever able to identify the vehicle of interest or the man and the woman that were seen by witnesses. When we asked Denise about this particular aspect, this particular sighting of a, of a full-on public abduction, she stated that from what she understands, that location where the abduction allegedly occurred was about a mile away from her home, which means that Jeffrey, a three-year-old, would have walked an entire mile by himself. And, and he would have done this by walking past other groups of children and not stopping to talk to them. He would have walked a whole mile and then been abducted by this couple in the pickup truck. Now, in 1995, a retired teacher from Saskatoon reached out to Jeffrey's father, Ray, declaring that she had taught Jeffrey and was confident it was him in her class. Here's Denise with more about this potential lead. We got a letter from a lady. Uh, she believed she had taught Jeffrey in grade four. You know this story already? Yeah. Okay. So we reported it. We shared it with the RCMP and they said they would follow up and everything. And of course they didn't. So went on and on and they didn't and everything. And so I said to them, well, sure, I'll just go investigate it myself then. They said, oh, no, no, we'll do DNA testing. And I said, okay, you do DNA testing, and that's good enough. So I waited. I knew DNA testing isn't like the movies where it happens, you know, before the commercial. But uh, so I waited six weeks or so, and I phoned up, and I got lucky. I phoned up at a time when there was nobody in charge there, and just a, a constable or something opened the file and said, oh, they haven't done his DNA testing yet. So I, I first, I called the police back and I said, my next call is going to be to my travel agency and I am my travel agent and I'm going to Saskatoon. So they called me back the next day and said they verified they'd done it and everything and, and uh, he wasn't. So unfortunately, the child in Saskatoon was not Jeffrey. Now, Denise does not believe that Jeffrey simply just wandered off. While he was certainly capable of doing so, Jeffrey was smart enough to stick to the sidewalks where he could remain in view of his parents. Denise firmly believes that someone took her son and she thinks they took him right in front of her house. Denise holds hope that the people who took Jeffrey simply raised him as their own and he was able to lead a happy life somewhere else. She also states, I know the odds are that they took him for less kindly reasons. Here's Denise with more in regards to what her thoughts are on what happened on April 24th, 1980. What do I think happened? Everybody asks me that. that that's impossible to answer because there's what do I think happened, there's what do I hope happened. Obviously, the thing you want to happen, you want somebody that really wanted a child to take him off and give him a wonderful life. That's very unlikely, however. Probably what happened was something really terrible and I don't want to go down that road. I just leave that one shut. Nothing I can do. It, you know, if, if it could bring Jeffrey back, I'd walk on poles and and uh, tell that story uh, 24 hours a day. But it, it won't. It won't do anything. Like we don't know what happened. So uh, 
it, like I say, it was like he disappeared. Like when they, they say he disappeared, that's exactly how it felt to me. I was standing talking to Fred. I saw him go towards the back of the houses. And then when I went in my house, I didn't see him. And then, you know, my peripheral vision, I didn't look clearly. I don't know. Like, I thought he had gone into Rodney's house. And then Rodney came and said, I've been waiting for for Jeffrey. So somewhere in there, in those few minutes, he disappeared. Despite everything, Denise remained optimistic through the years, and she wasn't the only person who was optimistic in Jeffrey's case. In 1986, an investigator in Jeffrey's case said he had a gut feeling the boy was alive. In that same year, the National Missing Children's Database was created, and Jeffrey's case was analyzed alongside hundreds of other missing children cases. Despite thorough investigation, no distinct similarities were uncovered by the investigators. In recent years, Anna James, a native of Sydney, Australia, came across a photo of Jeffrey Dupre and instantly became drawn to the cherub-faced toddler. She was in Yellowknife doing some investigative journalism when she came across the photo and has since become a private investigator, citing Jeffrey as her motivation to do so. Anna and Denise have formed a relationship, and Anna is graciously only charging Denise 10% of her total fee to help Denise find Jeffrey. Anna is working under the supervision of Pacific Coast Investigations. She works alongside William Bilson, who is the president of PCI and a former undercover police detective. Anna has been given the advice to start with the day that Jeffrey went missing and to go back and re-interview anyone she can with ties to that day, as well as ties to Slave Lake, such as neighbors of the Dupre family folks who have since moved from Slave Lake and people who have remained there for 43 years. Anna, being a private investigator, might also have better luck with folks who have something to say but are unwilling or wary of speaking to the police. When asked by Tyler Hooper of the Missing and Unexplained podcast about the witnesses who saw Jeffrey coaxed into the truck, Anna said she was working with the RCMP on who the witnesses were what she has been told is that Jeffrey was approached by the woman who was in the passenger seat of the GMC Chevy truck. He was placed in the vehicle by the woman and then they drove off. RCMP have looked at different databases trying to find a match to the vehicle described but have been unable to produce any further leads. They even put the tip in car and truck magazines in hopes of producing further leads. There is still hope that this lead could produce some answers. Anna has also opened up a new tip line and is logging absolutely everything that comes through. Most tips are coming from the Slave Lake area, but there are tips that have been sent in from all around the country. Since getting involved in the case, Anna has also had the arduous job of scouring hundreds of messages that were sent to the Facebook group, What Happened to Jeffrey Dupre? There were many messages that hadn't been opened or replied to, not due to a lack of interest, but emotional exhaustion on Denise's part. As she was working her way through the messages to the Facebook group, a message from someone named Clint caught her eye. The message had been sent in 2020, and this person claimed to be Jeffrey. He sent photos of himself as an adult, as well as of him as a child. He also sent photos of the people who raised him. In total, Clint sent around 10 photos. Anna has since reached out to him several times, but it looks like the man calling himself Clint has since deleted the account he reached out from. This person wrote a long descriptive message that Anna has gone through with a fine-tooth comb multiple times in an effort to legitimize what he's saying, including the last name that he provided in the message. 
They've gone through yearbooks, voting records, etc. to try to locate him, but they can still not find this person. If you're out there, Clint, please contact the Facebook group again or Anna James directly at Anna at recoveragency.com. But Clint wasn't the only person that has reached out claiming to be Jeffrey. In 2010, a man named Larry also reached out to the Facebook group. Larry said he was based in Michigan, and he did message back and forth on Facebook a few times before going quiet. There was mention of doing a DNA test in the messages back and forth with Larry. Anna says Larry's story interests her, as it's a wild story, and she says that the photos Larry provided in the messages are compelling. Anna would also love to be able to connect with Larry, so again, Larry, if you're out there, please reach out again. Both of these men believe to have been adopted and that the people raising them are not their biological parents. Anna is offering to pay for DNA testing for both of these men, and even if they aren't Jeffrey, she will connect them with a genealogist to assist them in finding out who they are and where they came from. We asked Denise what her thoughts are on the various men who have come forward over the years claiming to be Jeffrey and if they could hold the answers to solve this case. But I remember... In the mid-2010s, how old would Chris would have been? So maybe 15, 20 years ago. I don't remember when it was. But anyway, this young man came forward in uh, Texas. And to me, he's like emblematic of, of all the, the young people that came forward. And he had a really, he had a story. It had a fire. It had, you know, missing. It had all these things from his memory of, of being found or whatever at age three. And he was sure he was Jaffrey. But of course he wasn't. Eventually got, they got, it took the RCMP forever, but eventually they did the, the DNA testing. And I just feel sad because that's the other side of it, right? Somebody disrupted those people and took them somewhere so they don't even really know who they are. And they want to be Jeffrey so they'll know who they are. Like just not knowing is such a big thing. When talking to the Grand Prairie Daily Herald Tribune in 2002, Ray said, It's tough. You can't help but get your hopes up when it happens. Then it's pretty disappointing. Denise continued, How long you hold out hope your son will be alive is not a question a mother can answer. How can you say, what are the chances? The chances were within a number of hours that Jeffrey was dead. That's the chances. But you believe that maybe if something that horrible could happen, maybe something that good could happen too. It's been 43 long years since Jeffrey Dupre vanished from his home in Slave Lake, and Denise has somehow found the strength to keep moving forward. She might be one of the most formidable people we've ever met. Denise went on to make a big impact on Slave Lake by helping to develop schools and social safety nets. She continued to live there for 13 years after her son went missing. We asked her if it was challenging to continue living in the small town where her son disappeared, or if she stayed in that house on purpose just in case Jeffrey was able to find his way back home. She stated that they actually didn't think that far ahead, and that she stayed in Slave Lake because she had gained a support system in the community. When talking to us, Denise said, quote, We just wondered where else we would go. How could it be better somewhere else? But staying in Slave Lake didn't come without small incidents where Denise's innocence was called into question by members of the community. Denise shared one of those incidents with us. 
I, I used to say, I don't know if I got my 15 minutes of fame or my 15 minutes of infamy, right? Because there were ha half of the people who, who felt so bad for me wanted to help me in that, and half of the people that thought, like at one point, I had an issue with my son, my my youngest, he was three or something, and he, and he was next door and something happened, and uh, it's not important what, but anyway, the, the fellow that lived next door, he came, you know, the, the dad of the other child, he came running into my house one day, and uh, I remember my housekeeper was there, and he said, I don't know what your problem is, because I never complained when you moved in next door, and everybody knows you murdered your kid. Like, some of them were that open. As we mentioned, Denise kept putting one foot in front of the other, despite the massive pain of losing her son. She would go on to have two more sons with her husband, Ray. Three years after Jeffrey went missing, Christopher was born. And then two years after that came Mark. In an article from the Edmonton Journal in 2000, Denise said it was some comfort to the family being able to see traces of Jeffrey in her other boys. In fact, in the age progression sketches that have been done over the years, the resemblance to Christopher and Mark is uncanny. But raising her two sons in the wake of her firstborn child going missing wasn't always easy. She would frequently be reminded that as Christopher and Mark continued to grow and age, her family had been robbed of those very same experiences with Jeffrey. Denise stated in a 2002 article from the Grand Prairie Tribune that she often felt bad that Mark and Chris never got to know their older brother. Another blow to the family would come in 1993 when Denise and Ray got divorced. Their marriage, like many others who go through losing a child in this way, could not withstand the added pressure. Denise shared more with us about that. Well, it was very difficult. The police may have harmed him almost more than they did me because he was out of town the day after disappeared. And by the time he got back and everything, everything was up and the police were already on my case. So he was denied the bond. He couldn't look at me and say, what the hell were you thinking? You know, what did you do? You freaking lost our child. He couldn't ever be angry because if he started to be angry, it would sound like he agreed with them. And, and I know when, when we did the Fifth Estate thing, I remember him saying, I don't know a lot, but I know that Denise didn't ever hurt Jeff. Denise is now a grandmother, and her two sons are very clearly a source of pride and happiness in her life. We asked Denise how the loss of Jeffrey has impacted her as well as her family. Okay, well, that's a very astute question. And, and uh, me, of course, it just wiped me out. But, like, for example, uh, when Christopher was seven, He's my older boy. Went out into the, the driveway. There was a double driveway, and I went. The kids are always played in it, and a number of kids there. And I heard one of them say, "Your mother killed your brother," taunting Chris. So that night at supper, I have a hard time. I told you I never cry. But I always cry when I tell these stories. So we're sitting at supper, and I said, uh, "Jeff, uh, Chris." Uh, when supper's over, would you like your dad and I to sit you down and tell you exactly what happened when Jeffrey disappeared? And he responded, no, mommy, now. He was so profoundly affected. It, it just, oh, it, I want it. I want it out, you know. And that was really, really awful. My youngest, he was a rock musician, so he got all kinds of tattoos and stuff. And he has on his chest, Jeffrey Dupre, April 24th, 1980, and a question mark. They weren't a lot, even, and they're that impacted. They they grew up with crippled parents, right? Or we can't say that we ever became normal or whatever after. 
so, and myself, like I say, I, uh, I have no friends. You can't have friends. Friends get sick of it. Like it, it's supposed to go away, right? Your child dies and you mourn for two or three years. And then, you know, you, once a year or something, you talk to your friends about it. But otherwise, it's not there. My friends are likely to hear, oh, well, I just gave this interview or I just talked about this. Or, like, it's just ongoing. It's never ending. There's no end. There's no description. There's You could just talk forever and you still wouldn't define it. Because we don't know. We don't know what happened. I have friends and family who are sick of it, right? And they say, well, what, are you, what are you hoping to achieve? And I said, my Facebook page is called What Happened to Jeffrey Dupre? That's what I'm hoping to achieve. Now, you might be wondering what Denise meant by stating that her children grew up with disabled parents. So here's a quote from Denise that she made to her Facebook group, What Happened to Jeffrey Dupre, on January 9th, 2023. I have multiple sclerosis. I've had it all my life. When I was diagnosed at age 21, MS was almost an unknown place in medical knowledge and I was given much advice which turned out to be wrong. I was told not to do too much. I was strongly advised not to have children. Ray and I struggled with our choice but decided to ignore that advice. We were rewarded with our beautiful Jeffrey. When I was first diagnosed with MS, the medical prognosis indicated I would be in a wheelchair at age 35 and dead at 45. By the time Jeffrey was born, I was not the only person to reject that prognosis, and I never quite believed it. MS is a degenerative disease, however, and soon to be 69, I am not what I once was. Along with my MS, I have broken each of my hips and had long overdue knee replacement that required extensive legwork and physiotherapy. I should spend hours each day working on my mobility, but the struggle that is my everyday life keeps me alive and moving, even if I am unreliable regarding sitting behind a computer on a regular basis. I have great difficulty swiping on a cell phone, and I'm not supposed to sit for long periods. I now have, thanks to all of you, some hope that at the end of my life, I will know what happened to Jeffrey Dupre. So with that, let's get into how our listeners can help Denise, Ray, Christopher, and Mark find the answers that they have been waiting for. As it is with many historical cases, the case of Jeffrey Dupre's disappearance is likely unfamiliar to the majority of the general public, and it's not their fault for being unaware of it. The Canadian media has not done a great job of making sure that these cases remain in the spotlight for generations of people to be and remain aware of it. But we can work to change that. As more and more independent journalists or podcasters dedicate their platforms to helping people like Denise and her family, we believe that we can ensure that there aren't as many cases that fall to the wayside. So first off, after listening to this episode, share it. Share Jeffrey's story with family and friends, share his missing poster, as well as the age progression sketch. The more eyes and ears we have on this case, the better chances we have of providing tips that could very well crack this case open and move towards providing the Dupre and McKee family with some peace. There is also a GoFundMe that we urge you to donate to if you are able. Your donations will go towards working with private investigators to re-examine all theories, setting up and monitoring a tip line to collect and investigate new leads, updating age progression sketches, postering and billboards, as well as social media campaigns, including paid ads to ensure Jeffrey's story is seen across North America. Above all else, 
Denise is so grateful to the members of the public who have stepped forward to offer help in any way that they can, whether it be through assisting in the search efforts in the early days, sharing Jeffrey's story, as well as his picture, donating to the GoFundMe, or putting up his missing poster or age progression photo around the country. The way the public has been able to come together and take action in this particular case and others like it has been nothing short of amazing. Here's what Denise had to say when she was asked how our listeners can help. Well, um, pay attention to the Facebook page, What Happened to Jeffrey Dupre. Either there's going to be um, a real investigation, in which case there won't be a lot to do, I guess, for a couple of years, or I'm really going to need help because uh, when I talked to Anna about it, when they first started stalling me, she just said, don't worry about it. We'll do it ourselves. And that's how we feel. Like I, I feel empowered now and I feel empowered because of the public. So as mentioned, another way to be an active true crime consumer and to help is to join the Facebook page, What Happened to Jeffrey Dupre? And Jeffrey Dupre is spelled J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-D-U-P-R-E-S. In the middle of our interview, an RCMP member called Denise with some news. They told Denise that they will be making the decision on whether or not they are going to investigate Jeffrey's case by August 11th, 2023. We will keep all of you updated as to what the RCMP ultimately decides. Should the police choose to investigate, Denise and Anna James, the PI's hands, will be tied while the RCMP does their investigative work. However, if law enforcement chooses not to investigate, your donations will be more important than ever to continue making progress in Jeffrey's case. We sincerely hope that the RCMP makes the right call here and that Denise gets the support from law enforcement that she has been waiting for for 43 years. At the time of his disappearance on April 24, 1980, Jeffrey Dupre was three years old. He is described as a white child with gray eyes and dark blonde curly hair. He was three feet tall and about 35 pounds. He was last seen wearing a long-sleeved beige t-shirt with brown trim, rust-colored pants, and dark brown orthopedic shoes. His family has a history of bad eyesight, so it's possible if Jeffrey is still alive, he would be wearing glasses or corrective lenses. He had flat feet at the time of his disappearance and wore orthopedic shoes as a result. His blood type is A positive. The truck that was seen by witnesses on that day was a 1978 through 1980 custom-painted Chevy or GMC short box pickup. It had chrome bumpers and wheels. The driver was a male in his early 30s, clean-shaven, with short reddish-blonde hair. Both abductors were relatively small. The woman who was seen was in her 20s and was coaxing a boy towards the truck. When the boy got close, she grabbed him and the truck sped away. There is a $5,000 reward for information leading to Jeffrey's whereabouts. If you have any information, no matter how small, please contact the Slave Lake RCMP at 780-849-3999. If you're hesitant to speak to the police, you can also send tips to tips at recoveragency.com. We will be posting photos of Jeffrey, the age progression photos, and photos of the truck observed that day on our social media pages for our listeners to look at and share. We need to send a massive thank you to Denise McKee for making the time to sit down with us. It was an honor to be able to include her voice in this episode. If you'd like to hear from Anna James, the private investigator that Denise is working with in this case, Anna sat down with Tyler Hooper on the Missing and Unexplained podcast. 
It's a fantastic episode that we highly recommend checking out. That's all we have for this episode of True North True Crime. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like more True North True Crime, subscribe to TNTC Plus on Apple Podcasts or on Patreon. We will see you all in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe.